0: Hey, this is Steven Tacey. You are listening to where we talk art with Dave and Michelle. Hey, everyone! Welcome back to another episode of Partnership for the Arts, where we talk art. Michelle, how you doing today?
1: I'm doing great today. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing good. I'm feeling blessed. I've got my cup of coffee, so that means that uh, I'm ready to go for the show. Excited about the show today.
1: Me too. I have a friend I've been wanting you to meet.
0: Yes, yes, I've been looking forward to actually uh, getting the chance to sit down and talk to him. Quite an interesting fellow, from what I understand.
1: He's had a very exciting life. He's got lots of good stories to share with us today.
0: Perfect, perfect. That's good. So, I'm ready to go. Are you?
1: Yep, let's start the show.
0: All right, here we go. This is Partnership for the Arts. Come join us.
1: As we explore the worlds of art.
0: You can find all of our episodes on our Facebook page, Partnership for the Arts Group Talk Show.
1: Or you can visit our new website, pftatalkshow.org.
0: This show is recorded at the Visual Arts Center in Punta Gorda, Florida.
1: Welcome back, everyone. We are here with digital artist, author, and TV producer, Howard Spielman. How are you today, Howard?
0: Doing great, Thanks. Howard, great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming
2: in. And thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, well, we've been excited to uh, get a chance to talk to you. Michelle has been raving about you for quite a while. So we're going to get a chance, I guess, to embarrass you while we, we go along that line. So, Howard, if you don't mind, Michelle, you want to get started? Because I'm going to actually get my first sip of coffee.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we've got a lot to cover today. Mm-hmm. And you've had a very busy career, haven't you?
2: Yeah, I have. Actually, I, I describe my life as just being very blessed and very lucky. I taught art in a high school for 28 years, but that wasn't my intention at all. Uh, my intention was to be a world-famous artist. I've been an artist my entire life, and that was my plan. But uh, during the Vietnam War, I received a letter from the draft board. That said, I was going to Vietnam and to report for a physical in two weeks. Well, someone at the draft board obviously did not want me to be a world-famous artist, but I don't even do well in snowball fights, so I didn't think I was coming back in one piece. But again, fate stepped in to save me. The New York City Board of Ed had a shortage of teachers, I had a degree in fine art. If you had a degree in anything, you could take a 10 week summer program and be draft deferred. And I told my mom at the time I was living at home, I didn't want to be a teacher at all. And she said, and I remember vividly, Spitballs are less painful than bullets. Go be a teacher. (laughs) So I thought naively that, well, I could be a teacher initially and be a world-famous artist later. And I was pretty young, so I taught art for 28 years. That was the first piece of luck that I had, I would think, major luck. And the second uh, piece of luck that I had was... uh, I had the right brother, and my brother started out as a comedy writer. And then he went to the William Morris Agency, and he had a whole stack of comedy material, and he had a one-page treatment for an idea for a TV show. And his agent was a young guy right out of the mailroom who brushed aside all the comedy material and took the one-page idea and said, write this as a treatment for a TV show. And that TV show was the original Kung Fu series with Carradine.
0: Oh my gosh.
2: That became an international hit. That is exactly like me sitting here right now and getting struck by lightning. That's how lucky that was. So I had the right brother. So he's a screenwriter. Well, he had a partner at the time. He's, you know, he's still his friend. Strangely enough, his name is also Howard. And after that big hit, he left New York and he got a big contract to write, five-year contract to write for Captain Kangaroo, which might sound silly, but a five-year contract to write any TV show in Hollywood is a big deal. And my brother was always used to writing with a partner and he was having a little trouble writing alone. So he came over to the house and he explained a couple of his problems. And at that time... I wasn't really confident to write you a thank you card. I don't think I was able to do that. I didn't think so, anyway. But I was listening to my brother and I said, well, you know, it seems to me a script is very much like a painting. So I see your problem. He says, yeah, what's my problem? I said, you're working from the specific to the general. You should be working the other way. He said, I don't know what you mean. I said, well, I'll give you an example. If I was painting a tree, I don't think I would start with the leaves. I would start with the trunk. And then I'd add branches. I would have structure. And he said, oh, keep talking. And I became his writing partner for about 25 years. We created original TV shows for all the major networks. And my... I guess you would call it 14 or 15 minutes of fame, it was in 96, 97, I had a very good idea. I created a show for Showtime called Dead Man's Gun that ran two years and 44 episodes. And we were the creators, writers, and executive producers of that show. We won a lot of awards. And now, here I am and my wife is telling me, we have an ant problem called the pest control, take out the garbage or whatever you know wives do
0: (laughs) Mm. so you're telling us those were the good old days
2: (laughs) so those were the good old days
0: i i have a couple of questions (laughs) right off the top go ahead Uh, first of all i'm going to say i grew up with captain kangaroo so i love that
2: (laughs) (laughs) big fan okay
0: You mentioned some of the other shows that you wrote over the time?
2: Yes. One of the early ones was an ABC show called The Young Riders. And that was Josh Brolin's first starring role as a kid. It was about the Pony Express. But this was long enough ago before cable, so that the the big four networks, the way they would work, is they would uh, commission... 100 pilot scripts, and of that 100, they would maybe commission 12 shows. Really? Maybe six would make it, and the rest would be a business write-off. Most of what we wrote and sold and created never got made, but we got paid.
0: Okay, so question. They give you permission to do it? I mean, what happens then? Do you start writing right away, or...?
2: When you um, sell um, an idea to a network, you don't start writing until they write you a check.
0: Ah, there's an important lesson there. First they say
2: yes, and then you open the mail. But when they say yes, then you have to start submitting treatments and first draft, second draft, the final, the final version.
0: And you did this for how long?
2: 25 years.
1: While you were teaching, right?
2: Yeah, the thing is, it's interesting, and I don't know if I should say this, but I'll say it anyway. I was like a spy. And here's what I mean by that. Um, if a network said yes, millions of dollars get spent to a, to a commission show. And its perception is everything. They would never entrust such an expensive project to a schoolteacher. So i'm a member of two unions the new york city teachers union and the writers guild of america west and you get newsletters from the writers guild to tell you how to take a meeting you have to look prosperous you have to look like you don't need the job so um hollywood never knew that i was a school teacher my brother lived in l.a okay so he actually could initially create the meeting or set up the meeting, and I would fly in for a day or two and act like I live there.
0: <laughs> and you didn't need the job.
2: And I didn't need the job because <laughs> teaching was always my safety net. But my brother actually, you know, he was, he was a terrific writer, and he never needed the safety net. But, you know, I felt like I should have it.
0: So, question, is your brother still writing today?
2: Interestingly enough... You know, and I wish I was connected to that original Kung Fu project. That Kung Fu project is now, uh, has been optioned by Universal as a feature film. And that's just, it's like an oil well that burps up money every 10 years.
0: (laughs) Well, I got to say, again, original Kung Fu, big fan as well. I remember sitting around the TV with brothers and waiting for that episode to come on. Yeah. Ah, little grasshopper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
1: (laughs) Excellent. Howard, tell us about your book called A Good Day, Confessions of Reformed Pessimists. Now, I've read this book, and it's full of hilarious stories about you basically getting yourself out of all kinds of trouble.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah. Again, you know, luck plays a big part in in a lot of what I've survived in my life. Um, So the book is a a memoir, and it's about um, noteworthy misadventures that just stuck with me. And I've told these stories to friends, and one day a good friend of mine said, you know, you should write this in a book. So I did. And to illustrate one of the stories is a, a misadventure and how luck played a part in this, my mother-in-law bought a house, a summer house, years ago uh, on a river at the I mouth. I hope
1: this is the rowboat story. What's that? I said, I hope this is the rowboat story. It is. Okay.
2: Well, it's one of the favorites I survived. And so this, this uh, summer home was on a river at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, and the river was so wide you could not see across it. And it came with a, an old, beat-up, aluminum rowboat and a three horsepower engine. And one day, and it was this was blue crab country, so one day my, my wife came over to me where I was in my usual spot on a lounge chair on the lawn and she had found something for me to do. She said her 80 year old, five foot two, non-swimming grandmother wanted to go out in the boat, which no one had used before, because they just bought the place, to get the bigger crabs in the deeper water. I open one eye, I look at this river, and I see nothing but whitecaps. The flag we flew every day was standing straight out. And I said to my wife, No one should be on that river on a day like this, especially in a crummy boat like that. And she said, You would deprive my grandmother of anything? I said, it's not a matter of deprivation. It's a matter of survival. And she said, the only thing that would change my mind, she said, you wimp. And she stalked away. (laughs) So now that she had hung this label on me, Well, there was no way to get it off except to take the boat out. Oh,
0: no. Are you serious?
2: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I went into what they laughingly referred to as the boathouse, and I looked for life jackets, but there weren't any because they had value, and the previous owner had taken them away. The boat had no value, so he left it. Um, There was a frayed rope at the bow, and so I put the little gas can in the boat and I dragged the boat down to the beach, hoping against hope, the ancient engine would not start. <laughs> Unfortunately, at the it fired. third pole, it fired right up. Okay, so I pull around to the dock and here comes the 82-year-old, five foot two, non-swimming grandmother. She's got a large straw hat to protect her from the sun against this blustery overcast day. She's holding a crab net uh, like a flag and we help, help her into the boat and then goes in the peach basket for these mythical Goliath crabs. Then my wife and then I get into the boat and we now have 10 inches separating us from the river and the top of the boat.
0: On a white cap day.
2: On a white cap day. So my bride, Captain Wife, says, let's go. (laughs) And without a hint of wimpiness, we start out. Oh, I forgot to mention there was a rusty uh, coffee can for bailing, which is an essential piece of equipment. So now we head out, we head out, and we head out. And I notice behind me, my wife is frantically bailing as the waves are sloshing over the bow, which I knew they would. And at the point where even Captain Wife had enough and said, maybe we should turn back, which I consider the understatement of the century. (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: howard i got a question for
2: you
1: she's gonna listen to this right <laughs> exactly
2: <laughs> that's okay she's heard she's heard this before <laughs> so i look back toward the beach and we're a half a mile away from the dock half a mile and there's no one around well i turned the boat around and by the way my wife and myself We had very little boating experience to complicate matters even further. So the first wave hits the flat back of this crummy rowboat with a loud slap, and the water comes up over the engine, and she's bailing even more frantically. This is what real sailors call a following sea. This is what we have now. Well, I'm trying to keep this engine going and my wife now starts frantically calling to me and I'm waving her off because I'm busy. And even more frantically, she calls to me. I turn and with great annoyance, I say, what? Her eyes are wide, her mouth is open and she points to the corner of the boat. I turn my head and the corner of the boat is under the river, under the river. And as I look, This crummy rowboat filled right up with water. And this story is in my book, by the way, which I call A Day at the Beach. (laughs) So uh, one of my favorite lines from the book is like, I don't know what other people do when they're in a sinking boat. But what I did, which would do justice to the comedy team of Laurel and Hardy, I denied the fact of sinking. And how do you do that? You straighten your legs as the boat sinks out from under you, trying to maintain your position. (laughs) This is good for one or two seconds. (laughs) And we sank and we sank and we sank until finally, here's where the luck comes in. The boat hits the bottom of the river, a half a mile off the beach, and I'm standing up to my chin. I'm standing. Well, Grandma is flailing around, but my wife is as tall as I am, just about. So she put her arm around Grandma, and she said, Grandma, the river has a bottom. And only when Grandma verified that fact with the crab pole did she stop struggling. So what are you going to do now? You step out of the boat, and you walk home. (laughs) (laughs) When we stepped out of the boat, the few pieces of crummy styrofoam under the seats raised the boat so it floated about two feet under the water. So my wife is towing Grandma home, and I grabbed the frayed rope at the bow, and I'm towing that boat home. People ask me, why didn't you just leave that crummy boat? Well, my mother-in-law was very frugal, and she would have asked me to buy her a new boat. So I decided to return her the boat she had. (laughs) So now, you know, a lot of these stories have a self-help moral to them. This is one of them. (laughs) (laughs) So we get back to the dock, ultimately... And my mother-in-law had been watching this whole thing through binoculars. And I said to her, well, didn't you used to be a life-saving instructor at summer camps? And she said, yes. I said, well, where were you when we were all in danger of drowning? And she said, well, I knew you were too far off the beach. And I knew you would have no chance. Here's the big one now. Unless the river was at low tide. If the river had been at high tide, you and I would not be speaking now. So what did I take away from this near-death experience? Well, what came to mind was what everybody says as little children, the whole sticks and stones may break my bones kind of thing. So now, when anyone puts a label on me That implies cowardice on my part for anything I consider dangerous. I now wear that label with pride. I'm thinking
0: your wife never called you a wimp after this day, right?
2: She can call me anything she wants. I'm not going.
1: You're not calling her bluff, huh? That
2: That
0: that, button is no longer pushable.
2: (laughs) So, (laughs) So that's what I mean about being lucky.
0: Well, we're going to take that luck and we're going to we're going to go into commercial with it. And we'll be back in just a minute, so everyone hold on. Hi, I'm Kit Moran, visual artist and jazz singer, and I listen to Partnership for the Arts Top Show. Okay, we are back and we want to make sure that we thank Kit Moran for that spot. And by the way, uh, Kit Moran, as she mentioned, she is a playwright, a visual artist, and a jazz singer. Uh, She has worked with Merv Griffin, who, by the way, Michelle, has performed at the last two previous annual surprise birthday parties that I throw here at the VAC as a fundraiser for them. This year, you'll be able to make it. So Kit, we thank you for that commercial And we are sitting here with Howard Spielman. So, with that said, Michelle, why don't you take it from here? I'm going to enjoy some more of my coffee.
1: (laughs) Right. Howard, you create digital art.
2: Yes, I like to describe myself as a digital artist.
1: And what does that mean?
2: You know, it's very interesting. And I've done a lot of um, art festivals. People say, well, you know, you don't have to explain your oil painting. You don't have to explain your screen print, but when people come up to you and say, now exactly how do you do that? You have a problem. So I like to think that digital art is just like any other art form with different tools. So it's the concept that the artist wants to convey, the image you want to create, and where the artist wants to get to, that's the crucial thing. And I've chosen to use digital means to get to the images that I want to create. So
0: photography or uh, or what?
2: Okay. All right. To expand on this a little further, I think I mentioned I taught art for 28 years. I worked mm-hmm. in every medium. I have a degree from Pratt in fine art. I. At Pratt, I was uh, mostly doing metal plate etchings. But when I was doing oil painting, I think a lot of oil painters begin with what they describe as an underpainting. Mm -hmm. You develop the the values before you add the color. So I begin with an original photograph, which I consider the equivalent of my underpainting that I used to do. And then working in Photoshop, I would create whatever basic effects I would want to get. And then I say to anyone who's still in the room listening, (laughs) the real work starts. I work with a digital tablet and a digital brush, and even that needs explaining. By then, there's one foot out the booth. (laughs) But uh, it goes like this. A digital tablet is a glass plate connected to the computer a digital brush looks like a ballpoint pen when the digital brush passes over the glass plate it disengages the mouse working with a mouse is like working with a rock a little hard (laughs) a little hard to get fine detail and what you get on the screen is a circle and the circle could be a pinpoint or it could be as large as you want and you click on a color you've got that color So there have been articles written about me that describe what I do as painting with pixels. So I consider what I do as
0: digital painting.
2: Digital painting. Mm -hmm. I've begun with a photograph, and everything I do is original. But when I'm done, and it could be weeks or even over a month's time of working literally inch by inch on the image, If I don't have something materially superior, more exciting, more beautiful, or in some way more special than the photograph that I started with, I discard it. So trying to be kind to the people who come into a booth at an art festival when they look at something, I worked on for a month and a half, and they say, oh, nice photograph, you touched that up a little. I don't tell them I touched that up for a month and a half.
1: (laughs) Because your explanation sounds very simple. Um, For something that you actually spend hundreds of hours on, pouring over every inch of that image. You go over it pixel by pixel, and you're zoomed in a hundred times on it. And you really work over every grain that you see. And the end result, when you step back and look at the picture really pops it's a simple outcome and a simple explanation for something that is actually quite complicated in my opinion to produce
0: well said
2: so even though the books say you're supposed to include your time when you price your work no one's going to pay <laughs> <laughs> for the amount of time i put in to what i what i do so uh, I'm also, with my art, I describe myself as a compulsive neurotic, (laughs) so I don't care how much time it takes until I get the results that I want.
1: And the results are worth it because uh, your work, it's bright, colorful, bold. It really reminds me of some of Andy Warhol's work. To me, it's pop art. And I know you you kind of make a face when I say that, but um,
2: it's... People, people are thinking Brillo boxes now, you said that.
1: <laughs> no, no. But really, it's um, the effect is amazing. It's really colorful, and when you stand back and look at it, there's all these little details that stand out that wouldn't in the original picture.
2: Yeah, I think a good way to maybe um, illustrate exactly what happens with a photograph and how it ends up. This is a, maybe a simplistic way to describe it. it one particular image I worked on. Everybody has seen these flocks of blackbirds in different places. They're starlings or red-winged blackbirds. There are literally hundreds of them. So in Maryland, I took some pictures of several hundred birds in a tree, but I couldn't get close enough to get a good, a good photograph. And I describe myself as a pretty good artist, but a rotten photographer. So I ended up with a pretty bad black and white picture of several hundred red winged blackbirds in a tree. But I knew this was going to be a good picture. And I blew it up. And what happened is all the birds were still on the branches where they were, but they became black circles. They were no longer birds. So I took my magic digital brush and one by one, I recreated every single bird, including the red, the red marks on the wings. And I remember at one of the shows, a fella comes in and he said, oh, I really like that. I call that, that, that image tree music, by the way. The titles are important too. Mm -hmm. And he said, I really like that. I'm a veterinarian. I think I want to put that in my office. But I just came to the show, and so I'll be back. Well, there were 220 artists at that show. And there's something in the art fair world they call be-backs. And generally speaking, people who say they're going to be back, don't come back. Well, an hour and a half later, he came back. Really? Yes. And he said, I love it. I'll take it. So that was very gratifying.
0: No doubt. Awesome.
1: A lot of your work is beachy, coastal. It has a lot of Florida wildlife in it. Uh, It focuses on palm trees.
2: Well, I think any artist, whether you're Gauguin or Howard Spielberg, (laughs) you're affected by the environment Mm -hmm. you live in. True enough. So, um, interestingly enough... A lot of the beach pictures are from Ocean City, Maryland, when I visit my grandchildren. But pretty much everything else is from Florida, where we live. So, you know, I like to say when I describe my subject matter, I take my subject matter from the beauty that surrounds us. And we're surrounded by a beautiful place here.
0: Right. Absolutely, Howard. Very, very true. So how long have you been working in digital?
2: Okay, about, let's see. I was fortunate enough to be made the featured artist at the Peace River Show in Mm -hmm. 2013. And I prepared probably for about a year before that. Um, So since that time, that Peace River Show was nice because uh, they lent me a booth, they publicized the work. People were very responsive and I thought, gee, this could be great. Second show, nobody gave me anything. <laughs> Had to buy a booth. I bought a van to transport the artwork. And my wife said, you keep spending money, you're going to be an art fair alimony.
0: <laughs> but you did make this past Peace River Festival just here in December, correct? That yeah.
2: Right. Well, you know, I feel like um, the virus has literally impacted the whole art scene mm. terribly yeah i i really feel that i have to let the local community know i exist
0: awesome <laughs> so howard i got a question for you you've done a lot of shows won awards many awards you want to share some of your favorite moments out of all those
2: oh yeah you know i i love the art festival scene completely and you meet so many interesting people um, I remember one, some, something stand out. This was, this was really one of the standout things. A lady came into the booth, and I forget what show, and the first thing she said is, I'm not going to buy anything. <laughs> I said, okay, there's no obligation. And I'm, I'm quoting exactly, I never forgot this. She said, but um, I just want to tell you something. I'm a professor at the Ringling School of Art. And I'm quoting her now. She said, your work is a song. It's an absolute song. And I would like some of your literature to share with my students.
1: Lovely. What a nice compliment. And
2: I said, lady, you don't have to buy anything.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The compliment was worth it all. It was
2: to me. Well, coming from a professor at the Ringling School of Art who exactly she, she knew what she was seeing and she knew what she was talking about.
0: Right, right. So, why did you decide to try digital art?
2: Interesting. Uh, when we built our house here and we had a walk through 2004, two days before Hurricane Charlie oh, ripped out my pool cage. <laughs> Uh, One of the rooms in the house I had designed as a studio. It's a 16 by 26 foot size room. And I had plans to be uh, making large paintings. And I started to do that. And then uh, I came to the Visual Arts Center just sort of on a lark. And I took an elementary Photoshop course. Mm. And uh, got very enamored of it. And then decided to delve more deeply into it, and it was because I had done everything else, and this was new. And I'm learning new things all the time. And I think, uh, I, what do I call this? I call this my Alzheimer's prevention uh, experience. <laughs> well, you're supposed to learn new things and challenge yourself. So that's that's this is what very I'm doing. true.
0: Very, very true. That's interesting. I didn't
2: realize that
0: you had come here and, yeah. and taken the. Uh, this taken is the
2: this class. was my starting point.
1: And that's not the first time we've heard that, is it? No. That one that an artist or an instructor got their start taking a class here right. at the Visual Arts Center. Walked, so. in,
0: walked in the door and decided to take it. That's who was the instructor? You remember?
2: I do remember. His name was Spencer Pullen.
0: I haven't had a pleasure
2: of meeting him. That was before. That was. It was that a long day. time yeah. ago. You
0: know, Howard. I don't know if you knew this or not, but I am actually working in Photoshop myself. I'm working on a graphic novel, so I I understand all the layers and all that. But yours is quite different because you're actually starting working with a photograph.
2: Yeah, I mean, I have a an image, what I call this, "River Jewels," and they're It's basically a, a school of tilapia in a crystal clear brook. And I went to my printer and he said, none of these fish have fins on them. You can't, you can't print this. It's a lot of fish. Well, I went back home and I put fins on them. <laughs> <laughs> and whatever else I had to do to make it an acceptable image.
0: When you take a photograph, I mean, you're, like you said, all well, with the blackbirds, that just turned into circles, do you already have an idea of what it's going to look like when it's done, or do you just kind of develop that as the process when you go through it?
2: You know, the image has its own script. It dictates what should happen. So like the, the last thing I just did was, was, I found this really fascinating. I discovered something. You know, I love when I surprise myself. So we were at the beach fishing. And I usually have a camera somewhere in the bag. And I noticed there were clumps of shells. Is that a big surprise at, uh, you know, Florida Beach? (laughs) So I took some pictures of clumps of shells. No big thing. Maybe I'll do something with these. So uh, I put the pictures in the computer and I played around with it. And the, the, the pictures of the shells were... It was like a, an overcast day. The shells were gray and white. Who knew that the shells had incredible vivid colors inherently? I didn't know that. But working digitally, I was able to bring those colors out to an incredible extent. But when I again, working larger and blowing them up, the shells, and there were several hundred of them, if you have to understand they sort of were stuck together as if they were made out of taffy. So with again, with my magic digital brush, one by one and shell by shell over probably a month's time, I defined every single shell. Wow. And that image is probably gonna be at the Shell Museum in, on Sanibel. And we're, we're printing that on metal at size 32 by 48
0: wow
1: yep your shell images are some of my favorite they are very colorful and it's it has that popping effect that i talk about because like you said everyone is kind of defined and outlined and the saturation is brought out and um it is a large-scale work a lot of your works are large scale is isn't that right
2: yeah the what i do in terms of sizing the image is i like to um bring the work out to what I consider maximum impact. So some things, they don't have the impact in a smaller format. But the nice thing about digital prints is that they you can custom size them. So if someone says, gee, you know, my house is not that big. I love that image. I just recently sold one of the shell pictures, to a collector who said, I'd like, I love this, but I want it in a smaller size. So we, we just scaled it then.
1: Awesome, so you can do custom sizing for your customers then? That's,
2: absolutely. And you know, that's the advantage of not just showing an oil painting. You know, you you have the stretcher strips <laughs> and you stretch the canvas and you primed it with gesso and you painted it and the people come say, gee, I'd love that, but could you make it a foot smaller? <laughs> <laughs> Not I,
0: easy to do it that way.
2: There was—I can't remember the artist's name. I read this in an art magazine years ago, and I would never do this. But he was a pretty famous guy. He could do what he wants. He painted on masonite, and a couple came to his studio, and it wasn't that they wanted a smaller piece, but they couldn't afford the piece that was there. <laughs> This is supposed to be true, I don't know. It was in the magazine. So he took a saw, and he cut off part of the painting so he could sell them a cheaper a cheaper picture.
1: Well, no one will have to saw or cut Howard's art in half.
2: Well, let's hope not.
1: Because he does sell smaller prints yeah. and large-scale prints on your website, isn't that right?
2: Yeah, you know, and I have to thank you, by the way, Michelle is unbelievable. The problem I have is that I'm not a kid. Kids get the whole social media, digital age thing (laughs) just through osmosis. But at my advanced age, uh, I'm pushing this peanut up a hill with my nose here. So I uh, asked Michelle to help me, and she has been wonderful about doing that. So the first thing she did is redesigned... My tired website into something pretty special, and um, and she's helping with social media as well.
1: Yep, yeah, having lots of fun with it too. So you guys should definitely go check out Howard's new website that I designed, HowardSpielman.com.
2: Well, thank you for that. I mean, you're really you're really making me look good. <laughs> <laughs> Facebook. You're on Facebook, Facebook too, right? We are now.
1: (laughs) Look up Howard Spielman on Facebook. You'll find him there. Uh, He's also on Instagram and Pinterest. But the best way to find all of his artwork is to go to his website. Uh, It's available either gallery wrapped, printed on aluminum, or on watercolor paper. So you can have all those different formats sent directly to you.
2: Absolutely.
0: Howard, I got a question for you. When you do your subject matter, does that dictate what it's going to end up being on? I mean, like you're talking about with the metal?
2: Yes, it does. Um, for example, um, I was fortunate a couple of years ago, there was a show here called Springtime.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I had an image of uh, plum blossoms and uh, a honeybee. And I created that to be a watercolor effect. And so a watercolor effect... It should not be printed on canvas, it should not be printed on aluminum, it should be printed on paper. Okay. So I had it printed on paper and I had it nicely framed and I was fortunate that it won the first prize. And the other great thing, by the way, that I love about working digitally is when I work with oil paints or anybody works with oil paints, depending on how you work, let's say you take a break for a few days. Now you come back to your palette and you're looking at green and you go, oh, it's dry. Mm-hmm. Exactly how did I mix that color?
0: Yeah.
2: Well, digitally you have no problem. The color is there. You know, you can right. you can get it back.
0: You can actually mix your own colors and actually save it for later because it's always there digitally.
2: There's, there's nothing you can't do. Someone told me not that long ago that there's probably more than a hundred thousand effects you can get in Photoshop. That's before I crank up my digital brush so there's a lot of things you can do to occupy your time in your declining years
0: (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't sound like you're declining or slowing down at all howard
2: (laughs) no i play tennis three times a week i take massive amounts of vitamins and trying to stave off far the time as best i can
0: there you go okay so we are going to take another break and we'll be back in just a few minutes
2: Hi, this is cool jazz pianist Robin King, and I listen to Partnerships for the Arts talk show.
0: Okay, we are back and want to make sure we thank Robin King for that spot. Robin is a smooth jazz pianist. He's also a record producer and a songwriter. Robin, hope to catch up with you soon once this crazy 19 stuff is over with. We all miss you. So, We are sitting here with Howard Spielman. Once again, Michelle, you take it from here as I am going to enjoy another cup of coffee that I got during the break.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Howard, let's go back to Dead Man's Gun and talk about your days as a producer and what was involved in all of that. What kind of things did you do during those years?
2: Okay, well, the first thing that, that happens is it's... People who have seen Seinfeld, where people are trying to sell a TV show, it's very much like that. First, your agent sets up a meeting at a studio and you pitch, that's the word everybody's familiar with, you pitch your idea. Well, Dead Man's Gun was one of the more, I don't wanna say brilliant ideas, but it it was a pretty good idea. So we went to Showtime and the Dead Man's Gun took place in the Old West, which was a very hard sell at the time anyway. Westerns were hard sell. The second thing that was wrong with it and mitigated against it was, there was no ongoing cast like Friends. There was no cast loyalty. You could tune in and see the same actors every week. Because the star of the show was a gun that changed hands every week. The concept was, the gun had an evil spirit. And it was basically an amplifier of negative traits. Whoever had the gun was in jeopardy. So the first pilot episode, one brother turns to the other brother who became a ferocious gunfighter during that episode and said to him, I don't know you anymore. You were never like this. And the gunfighter brother said, who was in possession of the dead man's gun. Said, I was always like this. I just never knew it before. And nobody came to a good end at the end of the episode. So, Hollywood Reporter described that show as a Twilight Zone meets Gunsmoke. So, it was a pretty good idea. But anyway, Showtime said, We like it, which, strangely enough, because it had two strikes against it, and go write it. This was a co-production between MGM, Disney, and Showtime.
0: Now, Howard, didn't you mention during the uh, last commercial break we were talking about this that uh, another network had decided to do something like this of their own, right?
2: Yes. At the same time, they found out about the concept, but they couldn't make a show about a gun in the Old West, so they decided to make a show about a gun in present time. Instead of a six-shooter, it was going to be a 45. and they were going to have uh, viewer loyalty by paying a fortune to big stars like Daryl Hannah. I find out about that by picking up TV Guide, and now I know we're not going to have a show because they're not going to do two gun shows. And then I got a call to go to Hollywood and meet with Showtime, and this is what the president of Showtime said. And this is, again, a matter of luck. He said, I went to bed last night and I wasn't gonna do Dead Man's Gun because it was knocking us off. And I woke up the next morning and I decided, our show is better than theirs. We're gonna beat them on the air. And he looks at everybody in the room and there was my brother and Henry Winkler was uh, one of our producers. And I'm the line producer, Larry Sugar. And he looked at everybody and said, what do you guys want, rain or snow? And we looked kind of quizzically because we were going to be shooting out of season in Canada. And on the coast, in Vancouver, it's rain. In the interior, it's snow. Well, snow blinds the camera. camera does not see rain. And that's why virtually every episode of Dead Man's Gun has muddy streets. And, thank you whatever forces that be show got canceled after five episodes
0: you mean the other networks show
2: yes and they were labeled properly the copycat they were and we did 44 episodes and that's how the wheel turns sometimes so howard can we
0: back up here just a little bit would like to go through some of the different roles that, that that everybody plays to to get a production like this going like You had mentioned the importance of having an agent.
2: Yes. The interesting thing is you could be William Shakespeare. And if you don't have a good agent in Hollywood, you might as well not be William Shakespeare. So we've been represented by a lot of very good people over the years. And the first thing that has to happen is your agent has to be able to get you a meeting. Mm -hmm. Then you pitch your idea. And if they say yes, then you start writing.
0: Once you get that first check, right?
2: Yes. (laughs) In terms of being a producer, you asked, we were discussing that earlier. Mm -hmm. That's something that becomes uh, a negotiation. If you have leverage, you can become a producer. Uh, There are all kinds of producers. Larry Sugar is a line producer. A line producer is a guy that gets the trucks, the cameras, the crew. He's responsible for the caterer and making sure all the mechanical parts are there in place. An executive producer could be involved with choosing uh, casting directors, uh, post-production house, uh, a whole myriad of details, keeping the actors happy, whatever comes up.
0: So that brings a question to mind, Howard, with you doing this production and this show, how about some of the actors the the people you've met you' had a chance to work with while doing this
2: yeah uh, one the, the dead man's gun was really a lot of fun in a lot of ways because it became kind of a cult thing for the Hollywood actors to do it be, every episode became like a mini feature so um, John Ritter played a guy uh, who's a trick shot artist in one of the episodes and Meatloaf played a, a farmer. I met Meatloaf. This was interesting about Meatloaf. He had to do a scene, um, a lovemaking scene, and he's a farmer, and he's wearing long johns, and he wants and he was a little concerned about his body image, so, so I, he said, "Do I have to take these off?" I said, "No, take them, take them." <laughs> <laughs> So we had a lot of fun. You know, a lot of the actors just kind of just escaped me at the, at the moment. I would say they were mid-level actors. They weren't the, you know, the rock star actors where the Showtime would have to pay astronomical fees. So there were a fair amount of Canadian stars because this was a production in Canada, and Canada had a lot of rules about who could be in the cast.
0: Oh, okay.
2: Interesting. They wanted to be sure that their guys got airtime.
0: So, some of your favorite moments of doing that?
2: (laughs) Well, my favorite moment was some of the perks I got. Okay. And one of the perks was one of our episodes involved a 1,400-pound grizzly bear. And I decided that I needed to get a picture with this bear. (laughs) (laughs) So... I flew out to Vancouver, and watched the bear work with the trainer. And I, I noticed that a lot of people in the crew, was, they were a little hesitant. They were saying, look at all these people getting close to this bear. This thing goes crazy. Nobody could stop it. It's dangerous. And the way this bear was uh, uh, filmed, they would put this wire around an area, electric wire, so the bear wouldn't wander off they trained it early to not go near the wire so now the trainer says to me okay mr spielman it's time for your picture it's like <laughs> step over the wire so the wire is only three feet high the bear knows not to go near it. bears 100 yards away he says to me uh step over the wire and turn your back to the bear why am i turning my back to the bear that's how i trained him to meet new people so uh, Turn my back to the bear, whose name, by the way, was Coda, fourteen hundred pounds of him, and he says, "Coda, come." And a fourteen hundred pound bear covered a hundred yards seemed like in two seconds, and you did not hear him coming because he has these padded feet that like pillows, and claws that are four inches long. Yeah. Well, Coda got up next to me and he leaned on me slightly. It felt like a building was leaning on me. <laughs> And he said, OK, Mr. Spielman, put your hand on CODA. And I put my hand on him like I was petting a butterfly because I didn't want to upset CODA. (laughs) We took our pictures. And he said, OK, step back over the wire. And I did with relief. And then about 15 minutes later, the trainer comes up to me. And he says, you know, Mr. Spielman, I'm a little concerned about working with CODA. Tomorrow we work with him at night. I said, so what? He said, bears are predatory at night. I said, you know, when we took that picture, it was getting dark. (laughs) And he said, and he wasn't kidding, he said, I know. And if it was any darker, we wouldn't have taken the picture. (laughs) (laughs) But I I still have those pictures, and I cherish them, and it's a lot of fun.
0: I bet. So what does a grizzly bear feel like when you're betting them?
2: Feels like a hairy butterfly.
0: Were you petting him on the head?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I patted him on on the shoulder. And his shoulder was higher than my shoulder. On all fours. Wow. Fourteen
0: hundred pound
2: Fourteen hundred pounds.
0: And you and I just have to imagine standing there with your back. And going, here comes this grizzly bear up to me.
1: I don't know if I if I would have trusted that guy enough to let that bear run at my back.
2: <laughs> well, I wanted the picture, so I took a calculated <laughs> risk. <laughs>
1: That seems to be a running theme.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wasn't challenged by anyone else. This was a personal challenge. That's a little different.
0: Nobody was calling the name a (laughs) 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 whim.
2: That's right. That's exactly right.
0: Wow. (laughs) So, anything else, Michelle, before we wrap up?
1: Just make sure you go visit Howard's website, howardspielman.com, and see the wonderful work that he's been doing.
0: Right, and you can uh, also look at finding your book there as well, correct?
2: Yeah, the, the book you can get a signed copy from me uh, by going to the website, or if you're not concerned about whether it's signed or not, you can get it on Amazon. The interesting thing about Amazon is I found this out. You cannot copyright a book title, and the title of my book A good day confessions of a reformed pessimist there seems to be a trillion books with the title good in them somewhere but if you went to Amazon books and put in Howard Spielman a good day comes right up but if you put in good anything you'll be there for a while
0: (laughs) (laughs) well that's a that's a good hint to know when you're looking up the book okay great well Howard thank you for taking the time to come on well, the show, well,
2: I, I appreciate the opportunity very much. Thank you.
0: And uh, it's a pleasure meeting you. I, I look forward again to to reading the book and uh, and catching up with you on some other things there along the way. Oh yeah, and Michelle.
1: All right, have a good one, everybody.
0: Yep. Yeah, right, we'll catch up with you all later where we talk art. Let's get out of here and get some more coffee.
1: <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Partnership for the Arts talk show.